7-6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. Our first two episodes in this series told the story of MCOM's founding and then growth story. This episode looks at some of the areas that MCOM did particularly well, including the US market entry. We look at why MCOM succeeded, where subsequently higher profile organizations have failed in the same endeavor. We also discuss other factors that contributed to the company's success. In 2000, the Nokia 3310 debuted and went on to become one of the most successful mobile phones of all time. It was also in 2000 that the New Zealand software startup MCOM was founded. MCOM would go on to develop a successful mobile banking platform that would be used by thousands of global financial institutions and millions, if not tens of millions of users. In 2011, MCOM was acquired by US-based Fortune 500 fintech company Fiserv, and to this day retains an office in Auckland CBD that employs over 100 staff. Graham Ransley here. Um, yeah, I was uh, one of the founders of MCOM when the, uh, the role of um, COO came up. Uh, that became the uh, role that I fulfilled for most of my time there. From the point of view of looking at um, things that contribute to success, um, one of the things that sticks out in my mind that, that I always think about was... Um, a meeting that we had when we were doing a bit of payments work uh, in in uh, New Zealand and and a little bit of mobile banking work uh, in New Zealand and Australia, and uh, we had a, a planning meeting and uh, there was a there was an old dude at this uh, at this meeting who um, had been who rattled around the uh, the New Zealand. Um, um, Corporate nighty. Younger than you are now, Graham, to be fair. Younger than you are now. Exactly, yeah. Um, and he, I mean, he, he'd, he'd been around big companies and small companies. He'd done a bit of work for Victoria IRS or IRD, whatever they, whatever they call it in Australia, um, and, a, and a few other things. And um, and he said to us, what, what do you want to be? And we said, well, well we want to be a leading uh, company in mobile payments and mobile banking in, in New Zealand and Australia, well, in Australasia. And he just said, you guys are better than that. You guys can be the best in the world. And I can still remember my my first thoughts were, a Tuiad, yeah, right. And, and it took... You know, it took perhaps an hour or so to accept it, to accept that as something that we may be able to achieve, and to actually take up the challenge of doing that. And but once once we had actually made that decision, it made the life, or it made going forward in life a lot easier because it actually gave you some focus. I mean, it was a goal without. You know, without uh, 
put in too fine a point on it, he had helped us set the goal, which was probably instrumental in getting us um, to where we were going. And, you know, and so from that point on, what you did is, is that you looked at how you were going to become the best in the world. And it was through that process of thinking, well, you know, should we go to India because there's lots and lots of people there and they speak English and, you know, maybe we could become a big company out of that or do we go somewhere else? And you end up tossing up all the, the, the uh, forwards and against and you, you, you get to a decision to actually go to the US. And, of course, we knew nothing about the US and, well, very little about the US. And so one of the first things that we did was to was to do, try and do some research. And so we got Matt, who was a um, he was actually American, a, um, a guy who was doing MBA, I think, at the time. This Matt, Matt Krogstad, is now based in San Francisco. After leaving MCOM, Matt had a number of product roles at Bank of the West and First Republic Bank before turning his hand at entrepreneurship himself. Matt has recently reappeared in the New Zealand tech ecosystem as board member of File Invite. And Matt just uh, Matt sat up every every night for about three months with a big spreadsheet of information that we wanted and and making phone calls to the states. And out of that, you, we got we got data, we got information, we got the ability to make some decisions. And I'll tell you what, we actually discovered some very interesting things because we discovered that there was something like 17,000 financial institutions in the States at the time. And most of them were one and two branches. So you kind of think, well, how on earth are you going to, how on earth are we going to go and make sales to, to, to the likes of, you know, maybe 15,000 one and two branch banks in the States. And, and so it kind of, you know, that sort of information, that sort of data actually helped drive where we went. In fact, that was, well, that information was, was part of what provided us with the, um, the view of going with a, with a partner like Fiserv for the States. Uh, yeah, Adam Clark was one of the founders of MCOM. And um, once we determined we need a CEO, I stepped into that role, but largely was uh, responsible for where we were going commercially as much as anything else. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I would say we did incredibly well um, and that, you know, people could, is consistent today as being super important is be really, really deliberate. So we sat down and said, you know, opportunistically we could have gone somewhere else, but we actually did the analysis and then we put a very deliberate plan in place, which I don't remember much of. So I'm going to throw over to Serge to see what he can talk us through. But, um, but yeah, I do remember when we got into... Um, into that plan, one part of it was that that research early, and and both Matt and Serge, you know, again, I don't know that I see this so much today, but they're just relentlessly hitting the phones to talk to these banks and find out what was going on, and that was the first time we discovered Fiserv because um, the bigger banks would talk to us, the smaller banks got so excited about mobile banking and what we could offer. Um, but then when we talked to them about buying it, they're like, "Oh no, no, we'll take it." as soon as Fiserv offers it to us. And these small banks and credit unions and trusts, uh, thrift, they were called then, um, you know, they might have had a $50,000 a year total IT budget and they spent it all with either Fiserv or FIS or maybe one of the smaller ones. Serge, do you remember the plan? 
I'm Serge Van Dam. I uh, joined these guys a little bit later. I met Adam on a rugby field in 1997, about three or four years before they set up the company and a few years into the MCOM journey, uh, they felt it was time for me to join them and I was delighted to do so. Well, I don't remember the specifics of the plan other than uh, the things you might uh, expect. First one being discovery and as you've implied already, discovery meaning hundreds of conversation with hundred, with conversations with hundreds of representatives in those banks. And this is all pre-LinkedIn, of course, so we had to call the, um, the front desk of a bank and find out who the person would be that would be responsible for digital banking. And it wasn't even called digital then, it was called online banking, and it's hard to find these people. So, um, I mean, the discovery process was just hard yakka. And as you've implied, Adam, uh, what I see at the moment is lots of companies who are evaluating a market, it might be a geographic market, it might be a vertical market, it might be a partnership, just not prepared to pick up the phone and have 200 conversations. But that's really what it takes um, to be absolutely certain that you understand it, build up your database of contacts, build relationships. Uh, and those relationships ended up being pretty valuable to us a year or two later. So, you know, the discovery process uh, I think was the most important part of of what we did. It was probably the most delineating part. And certainly the, you know, if you talk about Bradley, about what things can we pass on to early stage companies going global from New Zealand, it's just how relentless you have to be to do that well. And uh, I just don't see many companies that are prepared to do the work. They, they just want to go into market. They want to, as Adam said, outsource the outreach. They want to automate marketing, you know, send a thousand emails to a thousand banks or a thousand emails to a thousand retailers and hope for the best. Uh, and we did the opposite. We picked up the phone, found out who these people were and had conversations. And that was really what set us up for building the rest of the plan, which was, you know, find a partner, uh, which happened to be Fiserv, the company that ultimately acquired us, uh, pick a segment, which we picked on the enterprise side because that's kind of where we were successful already. And, uh, as Adam alluded to, we won Washington Mutual, a retail bank with 17 million customers at the time. You know, we managed to do that um, with a handful of meetings, uh, having met them at a conference. We got relatively good at marketing given our non-existent budgets. So, you know, we were able to um, be part of conferences, tell our story, um, get ourselves known. And so, But I think it was all anchored on that discovery process. And uh, I mean, I'd encourage early stage founders and leadership teams to take that seriously and be prepared to do the hard work. Yeah, and that hard work, some examples, right, I can remember you doing, Serge, one was someone told us before we uh, before we embarked on this, you'll have to get on the analyst reports and the premier analyst for us was Gartner and they're like, yeah, you'll never get in a Gartner report without spending minimum of 50,000 US with them, probably a whole lot more. And we're... We took a contrary view, uh, particularly Serge did, and so Serge basically wrote a report for Gartner. He wrote well, the RFI or whatever it was for it. He wrote, obviously, our response, and then he wrote the report um, largely for them. They just had to plot where everybody ended up on the quadrant. Of course, we ended up in a pretty sweet spot on the quadrant. Um, there's a lot of what you'd now call hacking, I guess, before that term existed that uh, – particularly search lent led from a from a marketing perspective um, most of it completely legitimate some of it probably a little uh, 
somewhat a little edgy. I can remember. Maybe this is legend, mate. You can confirm it. But uh, you know, we wanted to get to a couple of the conferences, but we could never afford a, a real pass, um, or let alone to exhibit or get a keynote speaking. So, but one of our competitors did, and I think Serge snuck in beforehand to the auditorium and lay a, an MCOM brochure on and, and his business card on every single seat. <laughs> um, which is just I think we called it. I think it was guerrilla marketing back in those days, wasn't it? Well, that's what we called it. Yeah, yeah. We were just prepared to take those risks ultimately and just do the work. And again, most com- companies, most people would be uncomfortable with that. But that's, you know, having embraced adversity for a few years, that stuff becomes um, comfortable for you, or at least interesting, if not comfortable. In 2008, MCOM, that was then only a dozen or at best a couple of dozen people, signed a distribution partnership with Fiserv that was approximately 20,000. That is almost the definition of David and Goliath joining hands. Adam, how did you manage the power asymmetry as part of that partnership? Yep. Look, I think, um, you know, in any big negotiation, you're going to have some gaming, and I think there's some massive uh, game theory and and gaming execution put in place. One of the things that when we signed the the agreement originally, um, when we were in MCOM Towers, we came up with this context of the giraffe theory, right? Which is at the time I had a one and a half year old, and because I, I think Graham, you might have said after we we signed the deal, we need to right now we just got to deliver and make these guys, you know, super successful and super happy. And and uh, I said, yeah, look, I think that's a really really big part of it, but um, but if they've got they won't acquire us if they're getting everything they want from the strategic partnership. They would only ever then acquire us for our you know the the NPV of our future cash flows, and we need them to 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 acquire us um, strategically. And, and this giraffe theory was, I said, uh, my one year old at the time, Fletcher, you know, loved his giraffe, um, and it kept him pretty happy and content because there was no risk it was going away. But if you took the giraffe away from him, all hell broke loose. And uh, and I think that was that played into what you're talking about, Bradley, which is that. Um, we did invest heavily. We, we invested disproportionately in, sh- in ensuring that throughout MCOM was was viable, if not if not even strong, uh, without Fiserv. Even though we we did orientate almost our entire business and resources to the Fiserv relationship, um, and we actually did um, you know we did our best to make sure that they were aware of that. Um, you know, one of the things that that I think is a competitive advantage, and I don't do it so much anymore because I don't have the personality for it maybe, but um, we paid incredibly close attention to all our contracts at MCOM. And we negotiated what I think was really fairly, but we, we didn't mind that it took a long time to negotiate, whether it was with one of our customers, but particularly with Fiserv, in order to get what we needed. And we paid attention to all the detail. And, you know, now when I don't have the energy to do that, I realize who we were negotiating against. And they were people who were very smart and very um, capable and loyal and wanted to do a good job. But they were never going to get to the level of the detail that you can in a startup because you because it matters so much to you. And, and that really played out a number of times in, um, in terms of giving us what we needed in order to... Um, 
have a balanced relationship with our customers, have a balanced relationship with FISU. Um, what I would say, though, is some of the game theory that we tried to employ with FISU to, um, were, were on parts of the contract that they didn't even know existed. You know, for us, there were a lot of times when FISU would... It was uncomfortable for, for them if we would speak to their customers. And before we did the partnering agreement, you know, they didn't have any right to ask us not to speak to their customers because we didn't have anything in place. But for us, it was useful both directly and because the more we spoke with their customers, and particularly when we spoke with their customers with their senior sales execs, you know, created more and more tension for them to do the partnering deal with us. You know, after that, and we had this really strong strategic relationship. And, and look, one of the things here that I should caveat this with is I, I think that one of the core strengths that MCOM had, people, whether they were the, the folks at Fiserv, um, our customers, other partners, they did like us, they trusted us, they knew that we had um, their best outcomes in mind. So, you know, when we did this stuff that was a little bit cheeky, um, it wasn't that we were doing it to a level where, you know, where we put people offside. Um, but, you know, when we had, Fiserv did huge payments deals with banks and our deals were much, much, much smaller. But we weren't, you know, while it was nice to see them succeed with a big payments deal, for us, of course, we'd rather do our hundreds of thousands of dollars mobile banking deal than them do their $100 million payments deal. Um, for them, though, we could be disrupt. No, we would never necessarily, we might stall a payments deal. We might slow it down when the bank says, oh, we'll wrap this mobile thing in with it. And of course, they didn't want it slowed down. So they would prefer sometimes that we didn't speak to certain customers, uh, but we'd want to do it anyway. And, um, and so there are a couple of times that I, um, Serge and I, had to have a chat and um, get him to go and do that because I couldn't. Uh, and then I could apologize and say, yeah, that Serge, he's a bloody maverick. Um, I'll tell him again. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's one of the themes of the naughty Serge. Serge, you might have some better better chuckles for people. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I could get into specific stories. But, but I mean, I think the, the underlying theme and the – that I think is useful, and this is a piece of advice I give early stage companies, is the more comfortable you get with discomfort, the more likely you are to succeed, right? Partnerships have natural tension in them. Customer relationships have natural tension in them. Uh, product and revenue teams have natural tension in them. You've kind of got to embrace that discomfort. And once you get over yourself, and you know I'm a little bit more thick-skinned than most people, and uh, probably slightly on the spectrum, but in the end, um, I was comfortable with, uh, with just pushing the envelope a little bit. And whether it's, um, you know, putting in flyers in a, in a competitor's event or whether it's, uh, you know, essentially hijacking Unisys's booth at a retail banking conference, um, you know, whether it's uh, disobeying the rules and going and talking to customers, whatever it is, there's lots of examples. Uh, I was relatively comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, to full credit to Adam and some of our other leaders, you know, they knew that that was good for our business and they were willing to shoulder that as well. Um, and so, you know, that's my, that to me is the piece of advice I'd give early stage companies is if it's all feeling comfortable, if it's all playbooky, if no one's awkward during the process, you're probably not maximizing the opportunity in front of you. 
Yeah, well said. You, if you're not pushing any boundaries, right, then everybody else could be doing it. Comes back to one of the things we said before about, uh, I mean, that wasn't necessarily hard work every time. It was probably fun in some respects for you. Um, but, but there was also, and uh, everybody brought this with them, it was, let's, we were planful and we were deliberate. And then we just, we just got on with it. And I see a lot of procrastination and in, uh, in a number of people that just in startups today and startups then and big companies, small companies, and there was very little procrastination. We just got on with it. But what I would say also is we chased a, you know, through just getting on with stuff, we did also chase uh, a bunch of rainbows that we should never have bothered chasing. I think Serge, you called them shiny objects or something. So we chased deals um, not necessarily that we would never win, but we'd probably never want to win. Um, I remember Matt flying off to Bangladesh a couple of times and it's like, I'm not even sure we want this deal. Um, Did Matt want to go to Bangladesh? Well, he, he, he might have done and you could talk, you know, you could talk a good game about how it might be a good deal. And I remember having a conversation with him once because um, all of us, uh, I mean, Graham and I had been sort of in corporate world and doing some of this stuff for a while, but a lot of people we did, we tended just to hire phenomenal people, not necessarily someone who'd done the job before. Um, and, you know, so one of the times I remember saying to Matt, um, from a from a sales perspective, he said, oh, look, and, and this was around, I think, the Bangladesh thing, but it might have been some others. And he said, oh, look, it's, a, you know, there's 200 million people in Bangladesh that are just digitizing their banking systems. These guys are really friendly. They love what we're doing. They've spoken to one of our customers. They're excited. Surely it's worth spending an hour on the phone with them. And I'm like, okay, so if you only invest an hour, what happens after that hour? What are the two outcomes? And he's like, well, and I said, I'll help you. There are two outcomes. Either it goes nowhere, in which case you just wasted an hour, or you're going to have to spend several more hours. What happens after you've spent those several more hours? Either it goes nowhere and you wasted a whole lot of hours, or you're going to have to spend weeks on it. There's no, like, this be deliberate. Anyway, he went and spent weeks on it. Um, probably enjoyed his trip. Actually, probably didn't, but anyway. So I would just encourage, you know, I think that's an area where we were nowhere near as deliberate as we needed to be, and I think it was uh, it was a consequence of our personalities more than anything. We did get better at it. I, I recall um, a, uh, a deal that we'd basically taken through to the very end with uh, Andy Andy Parker, and um, this bank actually was just was absolutely keen on having us do the do the work. And then when they came to negotiate the contract, they just got completely draconian and uh, and uh, the contract was just terrible. And um, uh, and at that point, we realised who it was that we were going to end up working with. And uh, so we, we actually pulled back and uh, much to their disappointment. Um, but really, that was just that we learnt something about them during the contract negotiations and then decided that we didn't want to go forward with it. I mean, Graham, that is a really good example. The, the We should have pulled out of that way, 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 way earlier. And um, and that's part of the thing, right? It felt there were some fantastic people up there. Um, there was a fantastic opportunity, but there are a group of people also that exhibited that behaviour very early on and, and, you know, then into the contract and and on it went. It became, uh, 
just became unserviceable for us. And we should have just cut way early on in the process, but we didn't. Well, I didn't, and I would now. Because you get the signals a lot earlier. You've just got to, you know, hope is not a strategy, as they say. You can hope it might come right, but if all the signals are, are the wrong ones up front, get out. In terms of receiving signals, I want to thank those of you who have reached out to pass on encouraging feedback about these episodes. One listener pointed out that I missed acknowledging an important personality in my last episode, and that is Stu Christie. Stu was the original founder of MCOM, who left early in the journey, but came back to assist the team in the time around the Pfizer acquisition. Stu, since that time, joined New Zealand Growth Capital Partners as an investment manager, and is now an advisor to early-stage tech companies, and also a chair of the AI Forum of New Zealand. For now, this is the last episode in the series about MCOM. The next series of episodes will feature Pushpay, and hopefully I'll be able to share more episodes about Zero's journey too. This has been 6.4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know, and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.